Hello everyone and welcome back to another Phil 2500 lecture. This week is our week 10 lecture and we are talking about Jennifer Nash's article Practical Love, Black Fem Feminism and Love Politics. And for those of you who don't know, my um, PhD dissertation is on love and so this was, I really loved this. I loved this article. <laughs> Okay, so first a little bit about Jennifer Christine Nash. She's a professor of gender, sexuality, and feminist studies at Duke University. She's the Jean Fox O'Barr Professor of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at Duke University. She earned her PhD in African American Studies at Harvard University and her JD at Harvard Law. Wow, very impressive. She is the author of three books, The Black Body in Ecstasy, Reading Race, Reading Pornography, which was awarded the Alan Bray Memorial Prize by the GL-Q Caucus of the Modern Language Association. Another one of her books is Black Feminism Reimagined, which was awarded the Gloria Enzaldúa Book Prize by the National Women's Studies Associations. And we'll be reading actually something by Gloria Anzaldúa in our last week that I'm really excited about. And um, her other book was called Birthing Black Mothers. She's also the editor of Gender Love. Her research has been supported by the ACLS, Burkhart Fellowship, Ratcliffe Institute, and the Woodrow Wilson Jr. Faculty Career Enhancement Fellowship. So all in all, an incredibly impressive thinker. So let's get, let's get started. So this article is called Practicing Love, Black Feminism, Love Politics. So Nash writes, this paper uses June Jordan's query, Where is the Love?, as a window into a much longer and largely unanalyzed Black feminist tradition of love politics, a tradition marked by transforming love from love of persons into a theory of justice. Although black feminist love politics has been expressed in distinctive ways in different periods, this paper is going to focus on second wave uh, black movement. So sometimes the history of feminism is described in waves, which are just about kind of um, significant changes in theories. So you have like a first wave, which is associated with particular views and then there's a new awakening, some new learning, and you get a second wave. And there's lots of, um, obviously it's more complicated than that, and the waves don't really work like that, like clearly defined um, movements, but um, it's kind of a general way of thinking about the shape of the history of uh, feminist thinking. So this paper is going to focus on a second wave black black movement when jennifer nash writes pleas for love were consolidated into a sustained call for black feminist love politics this particular moment the second wave black moment has long been celebrated for its advocacy of love as a resistant ethic of self-care according to this scholarly tradition love is a politics of claiming embracing and restoring the wounded black female self. So there's really a focus in this black feminist love politics 
on self-love a very and a particular type of self-love nash writes my interest in black feminist love politics departs from interpretations of love as simply a practice of self-valuation so just self-love where you value yourself in a particular way that's not what this self-love is about instead Nash analyzes second wave black feminism's pleas for love as a significant call for ordering the self in a particular way or reordering the self and of transcending the self, a strategy for remaking the self and moving beyond the limitations of selfhood. So this paper reads black feminist love politics insistence on transcending the self and of producing new forms of of political communities as a kind of affective politics. And um, Nash gives us a definition of what affective politics means. So Nash writes that she uses the term affective politics to describe how bodies are organized around intensities, longings, desires, temporalities, repulsions, curiosities, fatigues, optimisms, and how these affects produce political movements or sometimes inertias. And if you think about the kind of the, so you, you, I don't know how much people know about the history of philosophy, but there's a, there's a real emphasis for a long time on the, on the rational, on the mind or you know, kind of like the stereotype of the brain in the jar, the brain in the vat. So if you can think about an affective, sometimes people talk about an affective turn, and, and Nash will talk about it this way later, but this is kind of a, a change from this super hyper-rational, disembodied um, way of thinking about things. So if you think about kind of affect as being about embodiment, as being related to feelings, emotions, but really, really about like the, the importance of, of bodies and that we're, that we're embodied. That was just, I just said body like seven times. Okay, so Nash goes on to say, I'm particularly interested in reading black feminism's effective love politics as a departure from the kind of political work that black feminism is often associated with, which is identity politics. So reading black feminist love politics as an affective project, as this embodied project, serves three purposes. First, this paper intervenes in scholarly conversations which advocate for the emergence of a politics of love by highlighting black feminism's long labor of love politics. So basically Nash is saying like, look, we have these thinkers who are saying we need a politics of love. And this paper is about saying, hey, black feminist thinkers have been doing a politics of love for a long time. The second thing that the reading black feminist love politics as an affective project does is endeavors to center black feminism in affect theories intellectual genealogy so nash writes this affective turn in critical theory which is what we were talking about before kind of this returning to the body has produced a rich body of scholarship invested in public feelings 
in the ways that global politics and history show themselves at the level of our lived embodied experiences. This work problematizes the boundaries between private and public and draws intimate connections between the subjective and the social, between the emotional and the political. This scholarly tradition of affective theory generally roots itself in queer theory, but Nash wants to show that it's also in, in black feminist studies. So lastly, and most importantly, Nash says, her paper reveals that black feminism has long engaged in political work that transcends, or at the very least circumvents identity politics. And it's at times problematic elisions, which we can understand as omissions, uh, leaving out things, and lapses into essentialism. So you can think about essentialism at its most basic is um, this idea that something is really something else. So X is really Y. For example, water is really H2O or um, water is essentially H2O or the essence of water is H2O. So this is essentialism. And if we think about things that Nash says later about the way that intersectionality fixes identity because it has to presume that race and gender are stable categories that are going to interact in particular and knowable ways. You can see how this could lead to a sort of um, essentialism. So Nash writes, indeed in this post-identitarian or at least identity skeptical theoretical milieu, feminists regularly craft narratives about feminist history that relegates black feminism to the past precisely because of its imagined attachment to identity work. So basically, since identity work by, um, or since the idea of intersectionality from Crenshaw blew up and became this um, really like widely known, wi widely used uh, theoretical idea, you know, then critique and ideas move forward and um, and so what Nash is saying, because of this and because black feminist work has been so linked to uh, intersectionality and identity politics, then sometimes it's, it's treated as, it's, as if it's part of the past. The black feminism is, um, you know, kind of over because intersectionality is, we've moved past intersectionality. So Nash writes, her investment in tracing black feminism's non-identitarian work is animated by a commitment to underscoring the many political traditions that have long been part of black feminism, but that are often ignored because of the success of intersectionality. Nash writes, what do I mean when I describe intersectionality as an identitarian project? What does, what does that mean, an identitarian project? Well, in this article, she's going to argue that intersectionality is, is linked to the production and maintenance of identity categories. So in this way, it has to be an, an identitarian project or a project about identity categories because it's about the production and maintenance and um, seeing certain identity categories. It's about pointing out, and she says, uh, adding complexity to existing identity categories 
but it's really not about throwing out those categories altogether. It's about um, seeing them differently. Nash writes, intersectionality's investment in particularity or complexity is obvious in its in investment in using black women's experience to problematize the rigid distinction between race and gender. And this is what we saw in Crenshaw's article. But it still maintains a fundamental faith in the categories as meaningful, um, legible, and coherent. So if we think about the Crenshaw article that we read, her point was to um, point out problems with the race and gender categories as being uh, strict and distinct and easily separable. But it's not about, but her work wasn't about getting rid of these categories altogether. And, you know, there's, there might be reasons that we want, um, we want project that actually gets rid of them or doesn't, doesn't rely on them or doesn't um, maintain them or, or produce, continue to produce these identity categories. Nash writes, Crenshaw's juridical intervention was not to abandon anti-discrimination laws, reliance on categories, both for um, addressing injuries and for granting relief. What she sought to do was to reveal the injuries that anti-discrimination's logic ignored and to show the necessity of juridical attention to injuries that occur in the intersection of race and gender. And this idea of injuries is something that will come up uh, later in this article as well. Nash will say more about um, the problem of this focus that intersectionality has on injuries. So Nash writes, if intersectionality emerges as a legal intervention, it also sought to rehabilitate identity politics. Crenshaw's point of departure is that identity politics frequently conflates or ignores intragroup difference, which is within a single group, differences between a single group. For Crenshaw, intersectionality allows for identity politics, practitioners to perform identity work with a new attention to the differences in um, single categories. So again, we have this um, point that, that Nash is making about how intersectionality is about um, rethinking identity politics and identity categories and pointing out problems with identity categories. But it's not about throwing out these identity categories altogether. And because there are some issues with identity politics, which we'll, um, we'll talk about later in this paper, um, maybe you want something else. We want a different kind of politics. So Nash says, this paper begins by arguing that black feminism's recurring interest in love can be interpreted as an advocacy for a particular kind of self-work, one that encourages the black feminist subject to transcend the self. And I just want to say this um, idea of transcending the self. I, like, I think this is an interesting idea to think about because lots of times transcending the self is described as a positive thing. So we have that in this article. If you um, know anything about um, like some kind of Buddhism talk, especially like Western Buddhism talk, there's 
ideas of transcending the self, getting beyond the self that are normally connected with enlightenment or, you know, are positive. But I think it's important to keep in the back of our mind that transcending the self can also be negative. So in solitary confinement, for example, they find that people can lose themselves after spending too long in solitary confinement. They start to lose the shape of their bodies. They can't tell if something is being done to their body or someone or someone else's body or or something else. They lose a sense of the the boundaries of their bodies. They have um, auditory hallucinations. So we might think of this as an example of transcending the self that's not positive that's negative so i just want to i think this is a cool idea transcending the self so nash writes this paper then asks how this politics so focused on the labor of the self might also be the vanguard of a promising form of non-identitarian black feminist politics so black feminist politics that's not about identity politics one that we might fruitfully consider post-intersectional. And she uses post-intersectionality as an invitation to problematize the interdisciplinary fetishization of intersectionality's complexity. And, um, to th- and to think about black feminism as much bigger than intersectionality and to uncouple black feminism from intersectionality to move toward recognizing black feminism's other political traditions and other political contributions. So now we're at the section called self-love as a practice of freedom. And this section gets into Alice Walker's idea of womanism, which I'm so glad that we're going to talk about because um, it would have been bad I think to to talk a lot about black fem- feminism in a class and never come across the term womanism so in Alice Walker's book in search of our mother's garden she has a two-page definition definition of womanism which is a new term for black feminism Walker's feminist afrocentric healing embodied and spiritual definition is at times quite specific referring to a black feminist or feminist of color and at times it defines womanism associatively by connecting the womanist subject to a set of beliefs and practices. Though the definition moves from the specific to the general, from the material to the spiritual, it emphatically stakes out womanism as a political project that's separate from feminism. For Walker, womanism is distinct from mainstream feminism because it emerges from an imagined black woman's standpoint. Although Walker documents the social and historical context from which womanism emerges, she also differentiates it from mainstream feminism. Womanism for Walker is serious, grounded, universal, and purposeful, whereas feminism is its opposite, somehow trivial, diminished, selective, and silly. And um, I would like to add, maybe because I'm feeling a little defensive of feminism, but there are black feminists who specifically identify as feminists and not womanists Um, but it's good to have another term in our in our back pocket and um and i think it's an important uh recognition of the of the whiteness of mainstream feminism that we've been talking about 
So Nash writes, Walker's definition does far more than distinguish a womanist practice from a mainstream feminist practice. It crafts an um, episteme, which is a system of knowledge, we can think about it as a system of knowledge, from black women's imagined lives. So we have the epistemology term there in episteme. Womanism amplifies the centrality of love to black feminist politics, which is not something that we've seen in um, feminism, right? L love isn't central to feminism, uh, at least not in this like really uh, uh, in this way that it's central to Walker's uh, womanism. So Nash writes, love is central to the very definition of the womanist subject who feels love for other women, for humanity, for the spiritual world, for celebration, and most importantly, for herself. So self-love is really at the center of womanist, uh, of womanist theory, which I just think is so cool and not something that we've uh, actually talked about that much so far in our readings about the importance of self-love. And uh, I'm so excited that we're reading something that really focuses on self-love as a, as a radical political act. Yes. <laughs> um, but not just this kind of... But I, I think what's cool about the self-love in Nash's article is that it's not this kind of... It's not self-love as self-care in the way we see it everywhere on Instagram and stuff, you know? It's not about having baths, although... You know, those are, are nice too, but it's, it's the self-love that requires work and challenging yourself and transcending yourself and um, for this political purpose. It's, it's hard. So for Walker, womanism's universality is rooted in black women's particular experiences. She writes, part of our tradition as black women is that we are universalist. Black children, yellow children, red children, brown children, brown children. That is the black woman's normal, day-to-day -day relationships. In my family alone, this is Alice Walker, we are about four different colors. The embrace of difference becomes a way of connecting womanism to black women's imagined experiences and traditions. Nash writes, what she's particularly interested in as the most novel, underanalyzed, and transgressive portion of Walker's definition of womanism is her call for the womanist subject's unwavering self-love. Walker suggests that self-love stands at the heart of the womanist project and functions as a pre prerequisite for the other kinds of humanistic, sensual, erotic, and spiritual loves that the womanist embodies. Self-love, it seems, is the only love that must always exist. It is the love that enables the other loves that Walker's womanist embodies, engenders, and relishes. It is also the love that allows for the pleasures the womanist subject enjoys. The pleasure in the folk, in the moon, in roundness, in music and dance. And I just want to say that we might want to think about this idea about that a self-love that underpins all these other loves and um, how we think about that. Do we think then that we have to 
achieve some kind of self-love first before we can find these other things? Do we just need to have some self-love so we can experience these other loves? Is there a tipping point? Like if we have two points of self-love, we can't experience. But if we have five, we can. Um, so just thinking about this idea of one love under underlying or, or making other loves possible. Because um, this is an idea I think we see in pop- popular culture, you know, that you have to love yourself before you can love other people. But um, self-love, learning to love yourself can be the work of a lifetime, I think. So, we, so uh, it would mean putting off other things. Okay, at its broadest, Walker's plea for self-love articulates a relationship between self and politics, revealing that womanist politics requires a particular orientation of the self. That, I think, is such a cool idea. It's about being in the world, oriented to the world in a particular way. And that ethical management of the self might even prefigure, might have to come first before the political and creative projects that the womanist subject engages in. So uh, let's stop there and I'll see you at part two in part two of our Nash lecture. Okay, bye. Okay, welcome back to part two of our Nash lecture. Nash lecture, that's hard to say clearly without really running them together in a snake-like way. So we were just talking about um, Walker's plea for self-love as a particular orientation of the self and that this kind of reordering re, um, of the self, reorienting of the self might prefigure, might have to come before the political and the creative project that the womanist subject engages in. So Nash says, okay, but what does this arrangement of the self look like? What are, what are we talking more specifically when we mean a particular orientation of the self? Um, so she writes, Elizabeth Povinelli argues that love is a political event, but what kind of political event is the womanist call for self-love? For Walker, Nash writes, love is a strategy of orienting the self away from the frivolous, from the insignificant toward she, toward what she describes simply as the serious. The womanist subject is grown. She orients herself toward grown-up doings, toward knowing more, toward a kind of social engagement that transcends the self. Um, And this, I mean, I think this is so cool, this association with kind of being a grown-up and having this um, loving, this particular loving orientation of the self. And it reminds me of uh, the Akan people of West Africa, and there's some debate about this, but some people writing about the Akan um, people, like contemporary Akan philosopher uh, Kwasi Weirdu and Kwame Geki, talk about how personhood is not something that becoming a person is not something that just happens to everyone. It's a moral achievement that is bestowed on you by the community. So if you're being good if you're like helping and being a good community member then people might say you're a real person you become a person because of the way you are acting what you do how you are 
And if someone is um, not being a good community member, then they might say they're not a real person. And I think there's kind of a, maybe a cool link that's happening here. So Nash writes, being grown describes a self who's prepared to move beyond itself, a self that recognizes the limitation of selfhood, a self prepared for a certain radical curiosity about the social world. And I think this idea of radical curiosity maybe can help us understand um, the limitations of selfhood that Nash talks about in this article. Because um, a radical curiosity to me suggests that we go, we go beyond just kind of our own, ex being curious about just our own experiences, you know? If you're um, not qu queer, for example, a radical curiosity might might make you just interested in those experiences of others that you don't have yourself. Um, okay, so Nash writes, the politics of womanism is an active working on the self, preparing it for the labor of social engagement. What a cool idea, right? You got to work on yourself so that you're ready for the work of being of being with others, which is sometimes sometimes hard. And I don't know if you have this experience too, but sometimes I have these moments where I react to someone I love or even a stranger in a way that I don't like because of some something in myself, right? Maybe an insecurity, something someone says hits a nerve. You know, I make maybe like one of my nerves is when I feel like people don't think I'm smart. And so maybe then, you know, they make a comment, I feel hurt, like I'm not being taken seriously as, an, as a serious intellectual. And I react in a way I don't like. Um, and maybe this is one way we can kind of think about this idea of uh, the, the necessary work of actively working on yourself in order to prepare for the labor, the work of being with others, which is work we love, but is work sometimes. And work that we do so that we're prepared for the task of advocating for the survival and wholeness of, of all people. To put it another way, womanist politics requires subjects to work on themselves in order to transcend themselves. It is then a radical articulation of the political limitations of selfhood. And I wish Nash had said a little more about these political limitations of the selfhood. But maybe one way we can think about them is just the political limitations of identity that Nash talks about in this. Right, of really of fixed identities, of fixed selves, of frozen selves, and, the, and how that's politically limiting. Oh, I'm just getting so excited. I love this one. Okay, so for Audre Lorde, black feminist love politics requires turning away, or sorry, turning the self away, terror and loathing from a fear of any difference that lives in that deep place of knowledge inside us. Lord then is making an implicit claim about the untrained self, that it fears difference, and urging black feminist subjects to embrace a politics that names that fear and actively labors to topple it. I really love that phrase, the untrained self, which is, I mean, maybe that's one way to think about what we've been doing, right, is self-training. Like Audre Lorde, June Jordan treats love as a configuration of the self 
that labors to transcend the fear of difference. For Jordan, the political act of undertaking self-love is the process of embracing difference and becoming more expansive in one's idea of the political community. Both Lord and Jordan suggest that the labor of crafting a collective, a political community constructed around difference requires a serious undertaking, the task of working on or perhaps even against the self. The self is then able to recognize the, po the possibility of a politics organized not around elisions of same sameness, and I'm understanding this this word elisions means omission. So for sameness, I think you need to deliberately leave things out for there to be sameness. It makes me think of that um, really stupid idea. No, I mean, I think this one, I think we can say this one is, or maybe it's stupid, a bad word. Um, the, the bad idea of colorblindness, right? I think this is a really good example of how we get sameness by deliberately leaving something out. Because um, obviously there are different colors, there's difference. Uh, and colorblindness means leaving out all that difference to get this uh, sameness, or Nash writes, the illusion of sameness. So this lovingly oriented self is oriented, is organized around the vibrance and complexity of difference, which um, something we talked about in another... Uh, lecture. I, I can't remember who it was now, but about, but they talked about difference as um, not being this place for fear and um, a reason for hate, but at, as this place where it can offer like new creative possibilities and, um, and, you know, this vibrancy of difference. What Walker, Lord, and Jordan share is a fundamental conception that love is a labor of actively reorienting the self pushing the self to be configured in new ways that might be challenging or difficult. And Nash notes, they also explicitly resist rooting love politics in romantic love. So it's not about romantic love. Black feminist love politics practitioners rejected the notion that the political call to love is simply a call to love others. And I wonder what people who know more about Christian ethics would think about this. If um, we think Christian ethics is more about a, a call to love others or if there's also a call in Christian ethics to love the self and Nash notes that this is in contrast to some other uh, black feminist thinkers like hip-hop feminist Joan Morgan which I mean what a cool I mean imagine that on your business card hip-hop feminist Joan Morgan such a cool what a cool job whose concept of love is not about transformation of the self but instead it's about romance Nash says, although scholar activists like Walker carved out space within their conception of love politics for loving others, so it's not that in this love politics you don't also love others, but the central thrust, the political, the main political idea in their notion of love is that this love is really a labor of the self and not a loving attachment to another, and especially not a romantic loving attachment to another. So Nash writes, part of what makes the work of second wave love practitioners so radical is a fundamental investment in love as a practice of self-work. And um, maybe one thing that you've experienced throughout this class is just, um, is 
just finding these ways that these systems of oppression have been uh, internalized in you. So I th I'm thinking about the Bell Hooks sisterhood piece and about how she argued that hatred or animosity for other women by women is internalized sexism. It's about sexism. And maybe these are kinds of the kinds of things that we're talking about here about the, the need for a practice of self-work in order to, to overthrow or um, get rid of these systems of oppression. And um, Nash will say more about this later as well. Okay, so now we're at the section love and politics slash loving politics. Nash writes, my analysis focuses on two aspects of love politics that render it distinct from identitarian political traditions like um, intersectionality. So the first is that black feminist love politics has a radical, you, employs a radical conception of the public sphere, a very broad conception of the public sphere. And the second is that black feminist love politics has a, you, has a particular relationship to time and in particular the future specifically. Um, and I love, I love time. Time's so wacky. I don't understand it at all. Okay, so Nash says, my investment in locating a distinctive, effective black feminist politics emerges in part in response to strong and important critiques of intersectionality. And she writes most notably by scholar Jasbir Puar. And I won't say too much about these um, criticisms because I, personally I found these criticisms a little hard to understand. And I think there's um, Nash gives us some criticisms of intersectionality later that are a little bit easier to understand. But in summary, it seems like one of Puar's points is that intersectionality can be, um, is too, it's too easily used by regimes that aren't, that are still perpetuating these systems of oppression. So it can be kind of paid lip service to, you can say, you know, you can say, oh yeah, intersectionality, but then actually not do any of the work of intersectionality. And in replace of intersectionality, Puar talks about assemblage, which has, which has these ideas of feeling and tactility, so affect, so we have this embodied, we have embodiment back. So Nash says, okay, well, how might we read black feminist love politics, which is a feminist tradition deeply invested in feeling tactility and affect and in crafting political communities that are constituted by heterogeneity and variety rather than homogeneity, sameness and fixity, frozenness, which is one of the complaints, her um, criticisms of uh, intersectionality is about this fixity as performing the kind of work that Puar suggests uh, assemblage does, which is opposed to intersectionality or frictional to intersectionality, which is a cool way to think of two ideas as ha having friction, creating friction between them. So what is the effective political work that black feminism's call to love performs? And how is it different from the identitarian work of intersectionality? Nash says, okay, first, black feminism's love politics offers a powerful uh, reconception of the political sphere. And she writes that her understanding of, the pu of public, of what's public, 
is indebted to Svekjevic, who keeps the definition of public culture expansive and includes forms of embodied life that are not about institutions or organizations or identities. So here again, we have, um, we have mention of identities and this talk about going beyond identities. She also says that her understanding of public is indebted to Lauren Berland and, and Michael Warner, who support forms of affective, erotic, and personal living that are public because they're accessible, they're available to memory, they're sustained through collective activity. And also her understanding of public is indebted to the interdisciplinary work on the black public sphere, which treats um, things like street talk, new music, radio shows, church voices as part of the wider sphere of critical practice and visionary politics. Nash writes, if communal affect constitutes the ties that bind communities, so we can think of communal affect as being kind of a communal embodiment and about our, our relation, the relations that bind communities, then black feminism's love politics creates a public culture that's based on a collective public feeling of love. So it's about a community that's sharing in a particular feeling uh, of love or a particular type of love. And remember for Nash, this is about the self being oriented in, in a particular way to the world. So um, this is also what Jordan calls a steady state, deep caring and respect for every other human being and a love that can only derive from a secure and positive self-love. So this, this steady state of deep caring and this respect for every other human being is a love that comes from a secure and positive, a person who is secure and loves themselves in this. And, and again, not in this way that I think we see in our culture right now where self-love is really is really kind of equated or collapsed to self-care or essentialized to self-care. So what self-love is, is really self-care. But that's not what is being talked about here. This self-love here is much more active, involves, um, involves, hard, involves hard work. Okay. So Nash writes, love then is a practice of self, a labor of the self that forms the basis of political communities rooted in a radical ethic of care, a public sphere rooted in a shared commitment to self-love, self-respect, and self-determination. And we had Jordan talk about um, this steady state, of, steady state of deep caring and respect for every other human being. And we might think whether that's too small, whether that community of every other, other human being is too small because we don't just live in a planet on uh, we don't live in a community that's just made of human beings we live in communities that are made of of non-human animals of trees of grass of rocks of water so we might think whether this is this there there's something too narrow about what's happening here but we can talk about that uh on the class chat or something so uh, Jordan's political community is not based on the omission of identity or it's not about leaving out identity and it's not about a shared imagined sameness but it's about a conception of the public that's rooted 
in affiliation, in relationships, and a set of shared feelings. And I, I mean, I think there's something bell, bell hooksy happening in this paper too about the problem of trying to form community on the basis of shared oppression. Because we might think that's kind of what's happening in intersectionality, or there's something about the bell hooks critique that we could bring to intersectionality about shared injuries, shared hurt, about making a group, uh, drawing the boundaries of a group around shared hurt, shared oppression. Um, Okay, so this is not, of course, to argue that Jordan doesn't recognize the profound social inequalities and how they are allocated in ways that coincide with race, gender, class, and sexuality. Instead, Nash is interested in how a radical ethic of care, rather than assertion of shared injury, here we go, so kind of the bell hooks shared oppression, when of course, Nash writes, the great insight of black feminist theory, the great insight in a way of, of intersectionality has been to showcase that injury is never really shared, that identity work always requires omissions. And if you can, and you can think like, okay, if we actually did the full list of all of our intersecting identities, um, we might end up on these islands all by ourselves of, uh, at our very own intersection. So identity work, if it's not going to end in these kind of islands where I'm the only person at my, at the place where all my intersections meet, then it's going to require omissions. We're going to have to leave um, something out. So for Jordan, the public is not a site for articulating or displaying wounded black flesh. Instead, it is the site where selves laboring to love, to orient themselves toward difference lovingly or towards difference in a particular way, towards transcending the self, join together in a form of loving relationality. Black feminist love politics also reshapes the public sphere by offering a distinctive conception of remedy, of what of what's going to fix this. So instead of looking to the state for remedy, for repair, as intersectional projects often do, I mean, we saw this in uh, Crenshaw's article, right, where it was about, look, about changing the law, about the state doing something to... Um, to remedy the wrong that's happening by leaving black women out. Black feminist love politics asks instead how affective communities can themselves be the place where um, change and redress and remedy happens. By insistently looking away from the state, love politics practitioners perform frustration at the state. They reveal that they understand the limits of a state, of a system, of government, of a regime that's not committed to making changes and redressing their harms. Jordan's queries suggest that although the unarguable majority, so my understanding of this is if you think about all the silent minorities, if you think about all the outsiders in this um, patriarchal domination culture, then suddenly we get an unarguable majority because many people are outside in some way. So Jordan's queries suggest that although the unarguable majority cannot undo tyranny, the majority can critically analyze its own role in the perpetuation of injustice and work to unlock itself from the hold 
of hegemony, and hegemony is dominance by one group. So more than that, Nash writes, affective communities can consider the sacred possibilities that, can, they, that they can un unlock even under conditions of patriarchy and white dominance. So we don't need to wait for the state to make changes. We can make communities, we can make communities that are different, even if those com communities exist under conditions of dominance. And we can do this by examining our own role in this power, in these power structures, by locating ways to remove ourselves from the seductive hold of these structures. So although love politics reformulates public culture and organizes it around affect and new conceptions of redress, love politics also orient orients public culture toward a different sense of temporality. So this is when we get into the time business. That's how I think that's how you have to say time, like spacey. Black feminist love politics has long been invested in the open-ended, in radical possibility, in orienting itself toward a yet unknown future. To put it another way, black feminist love politics is staunchly utopian or optimistic. I like this. And this is compared to the presentism of something like identity politics or intersectionality, which calls for um, legibility and recognition recognition in the here and now right now I want recognition it is a project strategically disin disinvested in remedying the president present or the president too for a while or the possibility that the present could even be remedied and it's wholeheartedly invested in the future as a place for possibility it's not about but but I think this is an important um, caveat or qualifier that it's not about saying the way things ought to be but it's about imagining what things could be and it's about feeling revolutionary which is maybe how we should start answering people say how are you doing and you say I'm feeling revolutionary <laughs> I like that <laughs> so cheesy but it makes you feel good even just saying it it's in the interest of a collective escape in the visionary dreaming about going off script. This is what this is something that distinguishes black feminist love politics, utopian impulse from the presentism of ident identitarian politics like intersectionality. And we might think that there's something important also about talking about now, about asking things for now. Um, I think I think that you can make an argument for that. What I mean here is that intersectionality relies on an attachment, perhaps even a cruel attachment to the present in two ways. So first, it insists that redress can be crafted so that we can, so we can have cha positive change within the confines of something as it now exists. So for example, that feminism can be rejigged to include black women's experiences now. And we might think, no, we need to think about changing things for the future. Or that the law now can be reformed in a way that makes race, combined race and gender discrimination claims um, like legible so that we have ways to respond to those. And secondly, that intersectionality's very conception of identity, which it must treat race and gender as fixed, as coherent, as understandable, 
and it presupposes an identity. And so it disavows futurity, or perhaps more accurately, it prematurely anticipates identity in a way that fixes these identities. It fixes identities because it presumes race and gender are stable categories that interact in particular ways that we can know about and talk about. And it also aspires to make visible identities and, and their intersections right now, what's happening right now. Love politics practitioners, on the other hand, dream of a yet unwritten future. They imagine a world ordered by love, by a radical embrace of difference, by a set of subjects who work on and against themselves in order to work for each other. And I just think this is such a great line. Subjects who work on or against themselves in order to be better for each other. That's feeling revolutionary. <laughs> so black feminist love politics crafts a political community that rejects this idea of the wounded subject that lies at the heart of identity politics. In its place, it crafts a collectivity that's marked by communal affect, communal feeling of a communal feeling a utopian, visionary, future-oriented community held together by affiliation, by relations, and public feeling, rather than some kind of imagined or enforced sameness. And the last section is just kind of a summary. It's called Thinking Love, Doing Love. This paper has endeavored to show that Black feminism's long tradition of love politics, particularly as it was, as it was being thought of during the second wave, has effectively amplified a material and political idea of love. Love acted as a doing, a call for a labor of the self, an appeal for transcending the self, a strategy for remaking the public sphere, a plea to unleash the radical imagination. Isn't that that's such a fun uh, phrase, radical imagination? And a critique of the state's, state's blindness to the violence it afflicts and enables. And we have a little warning at the end. Beware, as Sarah Ahmed's work shows, the language of love, this, this word love, can also be used to conceal oppressive power by renaming what's happening love. And may, I mean, maybe you can think about individual examples of this, right? Like, oh, I'm sending you to, you know, a camp to get rid of your queerness because I love you and I don't want... Um, your soul to be damned forever. So we can think of the ways that oppressive power actually is inactive, but it is enacted, but renamed love. So Nash says, okay, it is important to consider how claims to acting in love can also be claims to power. This paper celebrates black feminist love politics as producing a number of critical shifts. One that black, I, I pointing out black feminism's long labor of love politics. And this reveals an understudied black feminist political tradition and underscores the importance of not reducing black feminist work exclusively to intersectional work. Second, it highlights black feminism's longstanding interest in affect, which exposes that the roots of, of the affective turn in theories is far more varied than it's often thought. It's often just described as being something that came from queer theory, another um, awesome kind of outsider theory, but you know, that 
Nash is saying, look, it's also been in, it was also happening in black uh, feminism theory. So finally, reading black feminism's love politics takes up the challenge that Hart and Negri advocate when they champion a politics of love. So it's also answering this call that people have made that we need a politics of love. And Nash is saying, black womanists or feminists have been doing it. It's, it's there, that history, that theory is, that works there. Where is the love is transformed by black feminism's visionary love politics from a personal question about romantic love into a political call for transcending the self and transforming the political sphere. So that's it for this um, week's lecture. See course announcements for some important course notes and have a lovely weekend.